Welcome to the premiere of the third season of Industry Insights, a podcast for, by, and about the film industry from the Berlinales European Film Market, produced in cooperation with Goethe Institute. Today's episode is developed in partnership with the Göteborg Film Festival, and this season of the podcast will be focused on the future of the industry. My name is Johanna Koljonen. I'm a media analyst, strategic consultant and experience designer based in Sweden. And on today's show, I get to wear two hats, both as a host and to present the latest edition of the Nostradamus report on the future of the film industries. We're going to start with a brief recap of this year's report at the top. And in about 15 minutes, I'll invite in my guest for today, Danish film producer Louis Vest from Zentropa. I'm very happy today to talk about this year's Nostradamus report, which is the ninth, looking at the near future of the screen industries in the industry's broader macroeconomic, social and cultural contexts. The Nostradamus report is commissioned by the Nordic Film Market at the Göteborg Film Festival and supported generously by our main partner, Filmy Vest, who make it possible for us to distribute the report free of charge. You can find a download link in the episode notes. This year's report title is Imagining a Sustainable Industry, and it looks at many kinds of sustainability, in particular where we are on sustainable business models and on sustainable labor practices. The report is similar to earlier ones in that it's based on deep interviews with industry experts, this year's representing media analysis, production, commissioning, film funds, cinemas and scripted television. And as usual, these interviews help us paint a pretty good picture of what's happening right now and what's on the immediate horizon. But the report is also different from usual in two important ways. First, it has more of a European focus, because one of the things we're looking at is the role of of global streaming services in maturing markets and their relationship to public funding for production. But also, the report very unusually actually doesn't predict the future. And the reason for that is arguably the most important finding, or really just an observation. Namely, that we're at a very particular moment right now. Not just we in the industry, but we in the entire world. In the last decade, we as an industry have experienced a lot of structural changes. And those have sometimes been difficult and felt quite surprising. But what is happening now is fundamentally different. Normally, when we, for instance, predict how audiovisual markets will develop, we do that in the context of the wider economy. And we take a lot of things for granted. For instance, that we know where the economy is heading, or on a more practical level, that you will always be able to buy cameras, graphics cards, and editing computers when you need them. But right now, there are just so many factors on the macro level that are affecting us that even those frameworks are gone. How will accelerating inflation and the rising cost of living affect middle-class households? How will fuel prices and the continuing chaos in global shipping affect consumer prices? And how will they affect access to tools that are vital for doing our jobs? How will the cost of production be affected? Also, the pandemic isn't over yet. And while fewer people are currently dying, which is great, we're also seeing a lot of people being away from work with infection this summer, which is not great. An absolutely central question, of course, is whether the war in Europe will end, or at worst, even expand. And regardless of how that goes, we are seeing enormous public investment in defense, which we hope will not affect public investment in film. But we don't know that, and many political parties gaining traction in Europe are very skeptical to arts funding in general. 
Beneath all of this, the climate crisis is accelerating in absolutely terrifying ways. And we've already seen unseasonal heat waves in, for instance, India and across Europe this year. And I know we're tempted to think of the climate as kind of a separate problem, somehow only humanitarian. But it really isn't. When there are droughts in Taiwan, making computer chips is affected because it's a water-intensive process. We have seen vital tech factories shut down because of floods, because of fires, because of cold snaps. Extreme weather events directly affect production, not just of film, but of everything else as well. And like most of the things I've mentioned already, we can't predict. We can't predict when these things will happen, but we know that they will eventually. So the main takeaway here so far is that we're living from now on, but especially for for the next few years, in an unusually volatile environment. You will need to budget for inflation and for rising costs of energy and transport and fuel and travel and people. Everything is getting more expensive. You need to get all your vital equipment way in advance because you might not be able to get stuff last minute. And most importantly, you need to question some things that we very recently took for granted. One example of this that the report discusses at some length is the development of the streaming landscape. We had all expected that the competitive investment in content would continue, probably on a very high level, for probably five years. Maybe we thought that it would plateau a little bit earlier in the most mature markets. But now... And especially since the stock market reaction to Netflix's Q1 results earlier this spring, which were very violent, there is a fair amount of pressure on the big streamers from their stockholders to get much more tactical about their content spend. Okay, but these are big words. What does that mean? Well, for one, we can expect that the streaming commissioners will look super closely now at the ratio of actual viewership on their platform to the cost per produced minute of the project. Shows that are proportionally expensive are likely to go, unless they have some other value like enormous media reach. But is this good or bad for European production? Honestly, I don't know. I would expect in general that our shows are quite cost efficient by US standards, for instance, because we often work with smaller teams. But how well do they really perform? We're about to find out. It might also be that rights acquisitions will grow because they're lower risk for the streamers than full commissions are. And there is a real possibility that even windowing deals get more generous just to keep costs down. That would be great. It's possible. We just don't know. HBO Max and Paramount Plus are only really rolling out in Europe this year. And like everybody else, they're, of course, legally obliged to stream a certain percentage of European content. And that won't change, which will protect investment levels up to a point. But the real growth markets for the streamers are elsewhere, currently in Asia. So it also makes a lot of sense for them to shift content investment there. So takeaway from this is kind of the same thing again, namely that we don't know what will happen, but we do know that we can't take continued high levels of international investment for granted. It will probably continue without much change for maybe two years, since a lot of that money is already committed, But after that, things might change. The report also takes a look at another hot topic, namely the developing relationships between public film investment and the global streamers. And this is a contentious area with so much happening that I actually suspect that we'll have reason to return to it on a later episode of this podcast. But the big questions have to do with whether it's ethical to invest taxpayer money in content that is exclusively available at a private platform. 
But also if it's sensible not to do that, if that's where the audiences are. Some people will say that the streamers can afford to pay for their own films and shows. Others will say that in the smallest language areas, streamers are in the same situation as everyone else, that the market just can't carry the cost. Other big issues have to do with the costs of right, including the worry that European IP is quietly being siphoned off to US-based multinational companies. And different countries are approaching all of this very differently, also depending on how they've chosen to implement the AVMS directive. This too can go in very different directions in the next few years. But what we can say at this point is that it sure would be very convenient for the biggest companies to play different European countries out against each other. For instance, pulling out of productions in Denmark to set an example for everybody else, as recently happened. What we are learning is that since the streamers are very large, it does make enormous sense for local rights holders, national guilds and unions, and local funding bodies to negotiate amongst themselves first, and on the European level first, before sitting down with the streamers, to be able to negotiate agreements that are consistent and sustainable. The report's final chapter collates recent data about workplace safety and the health and well-being of people working in the industry. And we've talked about some of this in the podcast before in the context of the so-called Looking Glass study, which in 2019 surveyed almost 5,000 members of the UK film and TV industries about mental health and the workplace. A follow-up study to that report has been released this year to cover the effects of the pandemic, and these statistics are absolutely alarming with 57% of respondents experiencing bullying, harassment, or discrimination in the last year. 65% of respondents considering leaving the industry in the last year. And only 10% of the thousands of respondents feeling that the film industry is a mentally healthy place to work. In the last eight months, since the death of Ukrainian cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the shoot of the US film Rust, There's also been a great deal of focus across the industry on issues of production safety, including a recent special report in Variety that concluded, among other things, that workplace accidents on US film shoots are underreported, and that we therefore don't even quite know how big the problem is, just that it's bigger than previously thought. From the available data, it does seem pretty clear that the film industry doesn't actually have a gun safety problem. We're typically quite good at handling that. What we have instead are two other problems. One with exhaustion, and one with workplace culture. And this also explains the terrible results out of the UK's looking glass surveys and other more limited studies done in other countries. Lack of sleep, exhaustion and burnout are rampant in our industry. It's so normalized that we allow this to continue, even though the immediate result of not sleeping well is that people become less good at problem solving, that their creativity is hampered, and that their empathy goes out the window, while at the same time they also become likelier to interpret social interactions as hostile. In other words, tired people make films worse, and tired people make workplaces worse. On top of this, lack of sleep also tends to be a culprit when people get injured or die in this industry, most typically operating heavy machinery or driving home from work after yet another 16-hour workday. But even if there wasn't a cost in injuries, there is really a cost in filming time, because tired people make more mistakes. We've always worked hard, of course, but in the current market and coming out of the pandemic, people are pressed even further, and often go from project to project without recovery time in between. The underlying culture problem has to do with glorifying suffering and misery in the workplace, 
and also historically allowing bullies a great deal of oxygen, uh, especially in positions of power. Many people in film also haven't worked with anything else and might think that these environments are normal. It's just five years since Me Too hit the film industry. It's just five years since we decided that actual sexual assault and other actual crimes would no longer be tolerated. That's five years ago. I think we have to face that our instincts for what is normal are not great. The pandemic has exacerbated cultural problems on set because people get promoted faster and line managers across the board are lacking in leadership skills or in deep industry experience. This makes it harder for them to care for their teams, and especially when that would involve speaking up to leaders above them in the hierarchy. We know that in this industry, where you typically get hired based on recommendations, speaking up about problems is really, really difficult. So what should we do about this? Well, again, the Nostradamus report offers very little guidance, apart from observing this. Without action, we cannot keep our talent or our crews or our staff. And without action, we won't be able to recruit young people to take their place, not if better terms and better workplace cultures are offered elsewhere in the audiovisual sector. Even within film, the best workplaces will become the most attractive to the best projects. A great deal of professionalization is required. And the good news is that as we're finding our feet after the pandemic and after the last decade of structural change, how we work will be changing anyway. So we have a real opportunity now to change it for the better. And that concludes my presentation of this year's Nostradamus report. Again, a download link is in the show notes. After this recap, I'm happy now to introduce my guest today, Danish producer Louise Vest, with 20 years of experience producing films with a wide commercial appeal as well as more art house oriented fare. She's been Lars von Trier's producer since 2011's Melancholia. Does that sound like you, Louise? Well, it sounds very much like me. <laughs> Excellent. Then we, then we got that right. Uh, would it be fair to say that from an international perspective, what you, what you make is mostly sort of European author-driven cinema? Yes. I think that yeah. uh, Danish, we are only six million people understanding Danish, so uh, we need to have a little outside from uh, from our part of the world. So, uh, yeah, from the beginning, Centropa has focused on uh, the international co-productions, but also film with a broader audience than our local Danish audiences. And are you involved with television? Now, I, I realize that there's a Kingdom TV show coming up. Yes, it, it is. It's very... Um, Exciting. Yes, we moved a little bit into to, to TV, mainly because our talent uh, walked that way. We have historically uh, been very auteur-driven, uh, meaning that, of course, we had the commercial aspect in our production from the start, but we are also following our talent uh, and the stories that they want to tell. So, and since it's became very, I would say, famous or interesting for a lot of talent to to produce TV series and series for streaming. We have also uh, yeah, taken a step towards that. And we have also employed a producer, Carolina Litt, who is um, mainly producing TV series because she's knowing the 
the right way to do the long TV series where you have more like a showrunner and um, writer's room perspective on the series. I think Sisse um, and and sorry Sisse Gramjørnsen and me we are more like the old the old producer way where you kind of go out and put the finance together from from many many different places and uh, then uh, stick yeah. to the director as as the as the most important creative partner it's very exciting that this venerable house of Centropa is, is moving in this direction as well. But but let's try and focus for a little while on the feature film stuff. So from your perspective, what would you say is the market situation currently for, for the kinds of feature film that you're making? Yeah, I think it, it depends whether you ask for, for, for the situation uh, in Denmark nationally and then internationally. Uh, I think to start with the, with the national part, uh, it's still good. Uh, Danish film has a very huge percentage of the audience that actually go watch Danish movies. Uh, so the market share of Danish films are quite good compared with other European um, countries. I think uh, that's also because we have a tradition of strong uh, Danish cinema. So the audience are still having a relationship to Danish uh, films uh, and have kept that uh, during the, the covid uh, we were lucky to have uh, periods of time where the where the cinemas actually was open, uh, and cinema was also actually uh, having a way where they could invite a lot of audience um, and still be safe. So we we ha- and then we had two very very strong titles during the COVID. We we had uh, both uh, Thomas Winterberg's Another Round. But also um, Anna Thomas Jensen, writers of Justice, and those two film kind of were both what I call um, future strong cinema movies. I mean, movies that will also be going to cinema in the future. So they kind of survived, and and they didn't even survive. They were really really successful in in cinemas. So. I think that's in a good situation. Um, internationally, it's of course another uh, another how can you say challenge because the countries has have um, worked very differently with the with the COVID uh, for for especially with cinema open or not. So it's it's clear to everyone that that we are meeting uh, extreme challenges uh, right now to 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 the art house film and with art house I'm not meaning the European art house film but the but the pretty commercial uh, broad um, but very artistic clever uh, art house movie that actually has an audience but has difficulties about uh, getting into cinemas um, worldwide. Yeah, I I thought it was interesting what you said about future strong films. Even before the pandemic, we knew, of course, that the role of theatrical exhibition was already shifting. We were just making so many films that it was impossible to put them all in cinemas without cannibalizing on each other. And, And of course, the festival window is growing. 
but that only creates so much financial space, even though, of course, it's very good for visibility. So so we already knew that we were moving towards this future where, where many titles would, will have to be monetized in the living room somehow and not primarily in the cinemas. And now this, of course, this change jumped ahead in this traumatic way. So now we're suddenly at this point faster perhaps than we thought where we're going to have to figure out which films belong in the theaters. And it sounds like you have a theory. So what, what are the future strong? How do you recognize which film is a theatrical film now? I think you have at one point said it even better that I'm able to. So, so I probably will, will, will conclude a little bit like you have done in some seminars where I have heard what you have said. Uh, but, but I will try to, to, to repeat it then. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think films need a story that is bigger than the story that it actually tells. Uh, meaning that we need to have um, we need to have a sight on life that is not only the con- the, the the very uh, practical story that is actually told in the film, but it needs to tell us something which is a greater story about human beings, where we are in life, and what is important. And for example, uh, another round book uh, it's called in Danish is a film where where you get a, a quite simple story about four men that tries to figure out where to go in their midlife crisis. Uh, but somehow it also tells us a little bit about how we live our la- how we live our lives uh, with a lot of possibilities but also a lot of struggles and how we find the way to to be the human beings that can actually do not only the good stuff but also the difficult stuff uh, stuff without uh, losing ourselves and i think that's one of that's that's one of the the points that that really needs to be in in a film that goes to cinema is to tell a bigger story and i i also think that's why all the uh, fantasy movies and marvel universes and so on that they are really they they really fit the big screen they have this greater story of life because it's it's not only the the practical story about how we live our lives it has it has another dimension to it so i think that's uh, really important and then of course when you have to pay some of your money to actually go to cinema and you often do you do not often go alone you go with your friends or family or children or uh, a, a, a group so it's also a lot of money you you need to you need to you need to actually call these people and arrange and and it's not something you just uh, watch on your phone so so it needs to be good enough meaning that quality is really really important you need to have a lot of quality in your sound and picture and the whole event of going to to a cinema together with others needs to be worth the money that you are actually spending. I think Uh, we always want, I mean, of course, everybody wants their film to be that good, but then sometimes that's just not how it comes out. Do you think it's becoming more possible as a producer to, to look at the team and say, I love you, we all love this project, this is not theatrical anymore. We were hoping it would be, it isn't. Because I think that's heartbreaking. I mean, having to make that that decision. Uh, 
Yes, of course. I think it happens all the time now. You will see more like uh, very simple genre movies or um, small stories that fit one format to go directly to streaming or you we have known the television film in some uh, territories for for a long time so yeah definitely uh, and i think that's important uh, because you also get very disappointed if you if you put a lot of effort in in taking your film to the cinema and then it then it flops and 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 i i will say it's it's difficult to know when you have the script but when you have the script and you have the package and you have the financing, you know better. And when you have the film, you know. It can be difficult to see the truth, but, but, but you know if it has a chance or not. Yeah. Uh, and, and the last thing I really think means a lot for, for a film to go into cinema is, is the signature, uh, at least for art house films, um, good commercial art house films needs to have a very strong signature. It has to be a film that could not have been made uh, by somebody else, or it needs to have, you know, this voice that, that actually sees the world in a light that you are not able to see yourself without actually seeing this art piece of artwork that actually tells you, hey, go come with me. I will show you how this world looks uh, your world looks in in my light, and and you will take something from it with you, and use it in the way you live your life from from there on. And it sounds really, it sounds a little bit too much maybe, <laughs> as as a fantasy. But I but I really think that there's a a truth to it. I think it's very interesting, and I'm thinking all the time now. So you're speaking about another round, talk, which was such a wonderful movie. I mean, but I'm middle-aged, so of course I'm interested in, and, and you know, I, I even know a lot of teachers. So of course, I'm interested in in a film about middle-aged teachers. Uh, but I heard that it was also a surprise hit. I mean, of course, it's set in a school, so there are young people in it, but they really are not in focus. And young audiences were really attracted to this, to this film. Uh, and I thought that was very interesting. Why do you think young young viewers, or maybe maybe you just answer the question that young viewers saw something about their lives? in this story about four middle-aged men. Yeah, it was about alcohol, which is um, um, good and bad, a, a, a huge part of being young and learning to find yourself and maybe also learning to find a level where you can be yourself in the middle of the world going on around you. So, so yes. And and I think the film was kind of it it has a it it had a modern touch, but still a melan a melancholic feel to it, which is in my opinion uh, Thomas Winterberg's signature. And and then the closing sequence of the film, where you kind of in 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 one sequence in one scene this fantastic dance, you yeah. kind of tell. Life is really hard, but you really have a chance to live it if you dare. And I think that's just something that gives us the, the, the thrill and the goosebumps when we actually sit there in, in this cinema and watch this scene all together. And all of us know that it's the truth, the truth 
it's just really, really difficult. I think it's uh, it's fun that you say goosebumps because when I've been talking about what I think my hypothesis for theatrical is, one is that it has to be physical, and then it's very easy to say, ah, but like that means comedies will do well, or you know, the kind of film that makes you cry will do well, or the kind of film that that makes you like jump scares, horror films will do well. But it can also be about this, like it can be about just being in somebody's life and feeling their emotions so strongly that you get goosebumps when they when they finally dance, you know? Yeah, very important. And the last thing, Johanna, that's really also something that I, I, I'm, I'm really up to discussing more is it, I mean, we cannot, we, we, we cannot live with going in the, in the, how can you say it in, in English? It, you cannot, just go with the, with the middle fine solution on everything. We need to find, we need to, to strengthen the best talents because the mise-en-scene is a forgotten language. Not forgotten. I'm putting on it on the edge, but it's a very challenge. It's something that is so important to, to the cinema uh, movie, the, the mise-en-scene, the director, mm-hmm was able to actually put the right ingredients together in the right portion. Uh, serious to streaming, to television, whatever. It's just put the word, the wording, the dialogue in front of the storytelling, which was nice because we needed that. We needed to have more uh, characters and, and, and more dialogue and understanding how people felt. But now we also need the we need the story we need the storytelling by Missan Sen. Yeah. So um, putting the I film really think back we have or, to or put the elevated aesthetic. Yeah. Thank you. This is this is uh, yeah. I mean, I know it sounds like we're talking about very big things. <laughs> of course, like the aesthetics of cinema and so on. We are, but I also feel like it's very practical. Now, unfortunately, the final topic, uh, as I have warned you, is is sadder. The final chapter of the Nostradamus report collects some recent uh, research on workplace safety and mental well-being in the film and TV industry. And the numbers are alarming from a human perspective, from an artistic perspective, from a diversity perspective, from a business uh, perspective. And I I think I summarized it just before as, as basically we have two massive problems that are creating a lot of these challenges. We have an exhaustion problem, like people are physically very tired on day to day, but also over time. And we have culture problems that are are significant in in the industry yet. And I I wanted to ask about how how you're thinking about this today, because when you started in the industry just over 20 years ago, the norms were very different. And I think we've even learned that the culture at at Centropa, of course, has also involved evolved a lot over time. So it probably also was not the most constructive. So I guess you've seen a lot. <laughs> so so my, my question, I guess, is what, what do you know today that you didn't understand 20 years ago? Everything and nothing. <laughs> I mean, in 20 years, we will know what we do not understand today. And this conversation, if we, if we listen to it in 20 years, we will we'll grab our hair and, and think, <laughs> oh, my God, uh, didn't we know better at that time? Probably we are, I'm, I'm not here anymore at that time. <laughs> I feel that it's, it's taking a lot of years to, to, to actually be in this business. No, I know a lot more, obviously, than I did 20 years ago. 
and I think that's part of life and 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 therefore I'm I'm I won't say I'm not regretting what uh, what happened but but I also accept that there was a different light at that time and there yeah. was a lot of thing happening 20 years ago that I didn't understand or felt was wrong uh, because I didn't feel it. I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. I I didn't understand it. Uh, we, which of course makes it even more difficult today when you actually see it, you hear it, you understand it to actually grab that you didn't had that understanding 20 years ago and how could you actually live in that environment but but you you didn't you didn't feel it and 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 with that it it wasn't it didn't feel like so big a problem as it as it feels today when you are looking back and and i think what i didn't understand was uh, obviously i was also in another power position of my job and and Today I'm part of the problem because I'm the one who is actually responsible for the working environment on the productions. Uh, so of course I need to 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 go into these uh, discussions uh, on a daily basis, uh, and I think it's very interesting mm. because I'm getting uh, more and more clever on this topic every day. I think the most important thing is to understand that it has always been there, and that so many people have actually felt uh, weak in the working environment they were in without telling anyone. Yeah. And, and that was actually the biggest shock for me was how many people actually felt weak in a working environment situation. Uh, maybe they have experienced something themselves, which wasn't uh, good for them. But maybe they had also experienced that somebody else uh, was feeling really bad without anything was done. So I think that, and I used to, I mean, only maybe two years ago, one, two years ago, I was always saying, but, but we need to find out how people can tell. Uh, because if I don't know, I'm not able to do anything about it. And I think that's... a a wrong way to put it. Today I feel that's a wrong way to put it because I experienced that no matter how many whistleblower lines you put up or how many papers you write with good intentions, I mean the only good intentions you can really, where you can really change anything is you going out being very very proactive in uh, having uh, conversations with the people who work on your film crews or in your office or wherever it is, you have to go out. You cannot sit and wait that somebody will tell you and then you do anything uh, and then you do something. You need to go out. You need to see, listen and feel what is going on on the production or at your office. And then you have an, to ask and ask and ask and ask until someone will tell you because saying zero tolerance or things like that in my opinion is not a good way because that's impossible mm -hmm. we work with high um, working hour we have all the risk elements for having 
a bad working environment. Yeah. We have lack of time. We have different working places. We have many people together. We have many assistants working for many um, uh, head of departments. And I mean, we have all the risk elements um, present and we cannot do anything about that. We can only yeah. try to lower the risks and then we can put up a system where people feel that we can talk about it. And I have experienced on the production because Centropa has now put in a system where on all the productions, the crew are actually voting for a man and a woman to, to, to kind of uh, be uh, working environment representatives for the productions. And then I and my line producer uh, take a meeting every week or every, every second week, if it's over a very long time of period, and really go into details about the different department and what happens. And then we also have head of departments, um, courses starting from one meeting before production, one meeting under production, and one meeting after production, where we try to give the head of departments uh, some instruments to actually work with a good working environment and try to help them to not having only a um, specific uh, responsibility on the, on, on the film issue. I mean, being a good photographer is not the only thing. You also have to be a good, um, a good leader, a good management person for, yeah. for your department. So, and we don't so, train people in our industry f for that at all. So, no, so it's, it's a big yeah. ask to, yeah. to say, oh, like, <laughs> I have yeah. to be a manager of humans. I was never expected or taught to, to be yeah. that. Or I was yeah. expected to know it somehow automatically. Exactly. Yeah. And my experience is when you start to actually ask a lot of questions, people also start to tell you how they actually feel. And yeah. then you are able to actually move yourself into the problems. But in a way, it is. It feels like I'm asking for my own problems. If you understand, I'm I'm kind of seeking my own problems. Problems meaning that then, if I'm asking a lot, then I also get a lot on 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 my table because yeah. there stuff is going on all the time. There's lots of things, and in all departments, at all movie sets, at in all production departments, there are. Um, many, many, many working environment issues that could actually be handled in another way or just be handled or just be talked about. Because my experience is that if you actually find these challenges or problems or uh, not ideal uh, relationships, you, you, kind of, you are able to do something about it because you find them at a stage where people can actually talk together and make yeah. the environment much better. So you need to you need to be you need to be very early out and and you need to be very proactive. That's the only way to change it. It's funny what you're saying because in a way to find your weaknesses and mistakes, you have to go out and ask for them. And then you also yeah. get everybody else's weaknesses and mistakes yeah. back. Yeah. And of course, I mean, I guess this is the reality of being the producer is that even things that are not your fault are still your responsibility, yeah. right? Yes, exactly. So so this makes it possible to address them. 
Yeah, but it's going to be a lot early on. Hopefully, film by film, some things can be solved, right? So that you don't have to have every, all the same conversations at the same time. That's what I, I feel, yeah. I also, I also feel just like, I'm so happy that you said the thing at, about the beginning about what you didn't know, that I think it's very profound that we have to forgive ourselves for what we didn't know. I mean, it's because it, I think a lot of people now are looking back at our careers and, and feeling a lot of shame and disappointment in ourselves at how could we allow things to be normal that shouldn't have been normal. Well, because they were normalized, that's how things, like that's how human cultures work. And even if we were miserable ourselves, we weren't able to act. Well, we, because we didn't know what we know today, we didn't understand the structures either in the same way we do today. And I think it's really important to forgive yourself for that, to be able to move on and say, okay, but now I know, <laughs> now I'm responsible somehow. I, I do have a specific question, though, which is a very European question, which is that that we have given historically because of the, the auteur, director, and we want them to have uh, an almost absolute artistic control. Uh, that sometimes has led to bad workplaces as well. Is it possible to separate this artistic control from like workplace management? Some directors are bullies, some directors, I mean, and I don't mean... Some directors are also, you know, sexual criminals and so on. That's a separate thing. Yeah, but yeah. let's put that aside and just say, like, the people who 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 genuinely believe that having a very aggressive atmosphere is artistically productive, for instance, should we allow that to continue? Yeah, it's 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 a very very good question, and I think there's not a simple answer to it. I at least I do not have the simple answer. But for me, it's. Uh, I think the most important thing is that um, the light on it has made it clearer that it's something that we need to address and to talk about. I'm not, I, I mean, I don't feel that I want to run away from it because I think that uh, it's also very, very different from project to project uh, what is actually the challenge in the way that because some projects it's people that have worked together for years yeah and and then you you are able to have a a way of talking or a way of doing things and you are also able to get people with you in that in a good way because there's a lot of love and understanding within it and sometimes you you put together a crew where you find out that this thing that worked perfectly at another film set, it's, it's, it's just not working here because it, 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 it has another, uh, it's, it's other people. I mean, we are different. So I think the most important thing, no matter how much final cut you have or how much artistic um, quality uh, your, your voice um, has, we need to make sure that people understand what they are, uh, what they are part of. Yeah. So uh, if you have a director that is working in a specific way, you need to address it also in a way where this director knows the consequences of uh, working in a specific way. You need to, to make sure at least now where you know where the light is put on it, then you cannot just close your eyes and your ears and say, okay, it will still work. No, you have to 
you have to stand up for the new light and say, now we actually have to talk about it. And maybe you feel you have to work this way, but that's not just the way you are able to work anymore. It's just not okay anymore. I think a lot about about what, what it would have been like to work with Kubrick, for instance. And I, I think just that there has to be a difference, I guess, between you can be disciplined and demanding and do a million takes, but you don't have to have an atmosphere of fear, and at least not towards the crew. May, maybe there are some special things. Ideally, also not like nobody should be actually ter terrorized. But I understand that in a creative artistic process with the actors, for instance, everybody can together agree to go into a state which is very extreme. I understand that that's possible. But maybe like if you're an assistant in the lighting department, you don't need to live in a like in an atmosphere of terror to be able to make really good work. Of Probably that's not. counterproductive. So it's also about about then, finding that balance yes. now. Yeah, and, like you're saying. And most, most of these assistants, they don't have the, the courage to, to tell. Yeah. They don't have the courage to, to stand up for themselves towards a very powerful um, director or photographer or production designer or whoever is their bosses on, on a film set. So you need yeah. to ask them. You need to ask them, how are things going? Can we work in another way? How is the pressure on time, on uh, quality on your own job? Do, do you have any ideas on how we can improve how we are working? Because then they start talking and you find yeah. out that you can actually easily fix some small but very um, universal things on how people have been working for 20 years. But if you just move it a little bit to the left, it's actually better for the assistants in, in these specific departments. So, yeah. so so I think the, the overall conclusion uh, has to be asked questions. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's very practical. Let's end there, Louise. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this and, and to share about what you've learned. Uh, it's been super helpful. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That is all from us today. Industry Insights is produced by the Berlinale's European Film Market in cooperation with Goethe Institute. Today's episode is developed in partnership with the Göteborg Film Festival. And if you like what you hear, do share an episode with a friend or give us a review on your podcasting platform. It really helps. We'll be back in your feed in no time. <laughs>